So like I said, go ahead. I want to first look at this text in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, as it looks to Abraham and the patriarchs. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 through 10. We read, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. When Abraham was called by God and was received the promises, those promises in many ways were physical ones. He would receive a land. He would receive an offspring. He would bless the nations through his offspring. And those physical realities all came to pass. Every one of them. God was faithful and fulfilled every physical promise given to Abraham. But in and through the covenant to Abraham, each and every one of those physical realities typified or foreshadowed a greater spiritual one. The promised land was not a temporary strip of land in the Middle East. The promised people were not a people who shared merely a single ethnic line, but a people who shared in the single bloodline of one of Abraham's offspring, namely Jesus Christ. The promises of blessing were found in a single offspring, not the entire offspring of Abraham, being Jesus Christ. At the end of Hebrews chapter 11... It talks about how all of these individuals looked for a better land, a better city, a better country. They longed for something that in their life they did not receive. It said that they had to wait for the fullness of us to be gathered for that to happen. Tonight in Revelation 21, we behold the better city the better country, the better people. A city which God built. And that is each and every one of us. We are the glorified city which God built. There is a psalm which says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders do it in vain. Everything else will collapse and fall. So should we be shocked when we look to this picture of eternity... The only thing that remains is the house the Lord built. The people the Lord built. The city the Lord built. This is the city that every person of faith has looked to and longed for from Abraham forward. The day that they will stand glorified in the immediate presence of God. And with the revelation of Christ... 
we get an image and a vision of that picture that even the saints of old, of the Old Testament, were unaware of how beautiful it would be. We get a clearer revelation of what it will be. And like I talked about last week, one of the great difficulties of preaching a text like the the, the one we have today in Revelation 21 is that words do not suffice to match the glory of what is being put on display. This is the city that God built. And we see it in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9 through 27. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agat, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelve amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a description. And one of the things that I hope that you get in this picture is the the continual, repetitive use of very symbolic numbers. 12, 144, right? Symbolic language describing its perfect cubeness. It is so important that we grasp that all of this is symbolic. 
I'll give you a couple examples. It says that the, the city is pure gold like clear glass. What gold have you seen that's clear as glass? What jasper, which is a greenish color, is transparent? Why does it say it like that? We'll talk about that. This is not meant to be understood as a literal description of a box coming out of heaven that is just I, somehow all the people are going to fit in there, not fit in there, I don't know. It's, there's no way they could all fit in there. It's not big enough. Every bit of this description is providing a architectural beauty of, of glory of the nature of the bride of Christ. The first thing we see is the identity of the city. We see it in verse 9. Notice what is it that the angel is showing. He makes very clear. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride of the wife of the Lamb. We've already been introduced to New Jerusalem before, back in the beginning of chapter 21. We got a little glimpse at her. I saw the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. So what we are about to see, we've just been introduced to her. What you are going to see is the bride of the Lamb. And we know that this is all about her. Because nothing else to the rest of the book talks about the bride of the Lamb. So either the angel just got ADHD and missed the point, or everything that follows is a picture of the bride of the Lamb, which is who? Us, the people of God. We are His bride. We are His city. We are His temple. And I think one of the great issues that I have with some of the hyper-literalism of certain aspects of Scripture when it comes to us being the temple of God, us being the bride of Christ, us being the new Jerusalem, when people refuse to allow that, they actually undermine what Jesus has made us to be. It undermines just what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You are His bride. You are His child. You are His temple. You are His city. You are all of those things. No wonder it says He delights over you. That He sings over you. The psalmist says that, that when he speaks of these things, in Zephaniah chapter 2, it says that when speaking of the bride of Christ, it says that it is the apple of God's eye. When you realize what you are to the Lord, you see why He was so fully, willingly able to go and to give everything for you of what He's made you to be. Don't sell yourself short of what Christ has made you. Quit, that, that's the quickest way to help undermine like that, that shame you once had. It's, yeah, I, I was that. But look, look at what He will make me. And it will all be Him. It will be all about Him. This is the identity. This city that we're giving here is is what the Lord has given John in the best way possible to try to give him the, the, the just sheer glory and beauty of what will be God's people when we are placed on the new heavens and new earth in the Edenic state. 
What's so amazing, though, is where it says, come, I will show you. There was another place where we saw this back in Revelation 17. And in that time, when the angel, one of those holding the seven bowls, comes to John and says, come, I will show you. You know who he introduces him to? The harlot. Come, I will show you. And he shows them the harlot of Babylon. Who is a counterfeit of the bride of Christ. Revelation 17, I'll read it real fast. Then one of seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So now, right, we've seen the counterfeit back in Revelation 17. And notice the counterfeit, the the harlot of Babylon, while she's on earth, she's luxurious. Said that she had jewels and that all of the nations came to her and committed adultery with her. Her her time on earth was good. But now where does she stand? She's in the lake of fire. She's in Gehenna. But the bride of Christ, who was battered on the earth, now stands beatified or beautified, right? There in glory. This is the beatific vision of the church, that beautiful vision of the body. Yes, we were the battered temple on the earth, but now we are the glorified temple in heaven. You see the great reversal of Revelation. That's why the psalmist so often talks about do not be envious of the the wicked of the world, though they seem to have it all. Because their day will come. Their judgment will be. And this is why we can endure suffering. Because this is what we know will be. This is what we know our outcome will be. John now gets to see the true bride, the bride, the wife of the lamb, the church. We know that this is us. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. We are His bride. And now we see. What is it that John will behold? And he sees a city. Fascinating. This is the bride, but he sees a city. Now we know here. Okay, we're dealing with symbolism now. We've got to be dealing with symbolism. And that's what helps us in Revelation. When we hear and then we see something unique. We're told that he's carried away in the spirit, just like Ezekiel was in Ezekiel 43 when he is brought to the mountain in order to see the temple of God. That's why we're talking about the same thing here. He's carried to a great high mountain. Now that's very important. In the Bible, right, what's, what's, what's important to mountains? It's the meeting place with God, right? Mount Sinai. Eden is on a mountain, right? Mountains is where God meets His people. The idea is we get further away from man and closer to God. That's the picture there. That's why Babel was an artificial mountain. It was man trying to build his own mountain to meet God on his own terms. Right? So it's, he takes him to a high mountain. And we see this throughout Scripture of this where God 
in the latter days, in the, the new age to come, that He will establish His holy city on the highest of mountains. Psalm 87 verse 1 through 3, On the holy mountain stands the city He founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Glorious things of you are spoken, city of God. Who's the city of God? We are. Augustine wrote a book called City of God, built upon this reality. There's the city of the world and there's the city of man, the city of God, right? We are God's city. And that city of man and the city of God are at conflict now, but this is the end state for the holy city of God, the place where he dwells, the place where his worship is offered and done. We know that Eden was on a mountaintop. In Ezekiel 28, which is dealing with the fall of the king of Tyre, the prophet utilizes language of the king of Tyre that was, that's descriptive of the fall of Satan. And we read of this, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. This is going to be important later on too. Sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub and I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So what you're getting here is you're getting a reversal to now we're going back to the Edenic state. What was lost is now being restored. And that's going to be very clear in those first five verses of chapter 22. Next week, our our sermon will be paradise restored, right? That's we're in Eden. We will see where the bride dwells. And that is a new Eden. We are on the mountain of God. Right. And that's the picture here. We are on the place of meeting place. Does this mean that we're going to be up? We're like kind of peeking through the clouds. Um, No. All that holy mountain of God means is that it is there that God will meet his people. That God will always be in a constant state of meeting with his people. Isaiah chapter two. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations flow to it. Micah chapter 4 repeats that verbatim. This is that reality. We are, he's brought to the highest mountain. Why? Because he comes to see the city of God there where God is always in meeting with his people. Always there, lifted up above. And the idea of being on the highest mountain is that you're protected from all sides. There is nothing which can attack you. You have the high ground. Not only do you have security, but you have vision. You are able to see and behold all things. No longer are you in the valley like you are now. Where you're trying to figure out, man, what is God doing? I I don't see it. I don't understand what His plan and purposes are. No more will that be the case. In glory, you will behold and you will see all things with perfection. You will see how His hand has guided and perfected all of His purposes. You will have no doubt towards His will because you will have vision like never before. Because you will see God like never before. The holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven 
Right? She's coming out of heaven. And notice what she has upon her. With the glory of God. Not with her glory. His glory. She has been fully glorified. You and I, as we are coming down out of heaven to dwell on this new, greater Eden, we will be glorified, dripping, immersing, shining, radiating with His glory. With His glory. Perfectly made new. Every muscle and tendon and sinew that that strengthens our body will have a, a strength and a flexibility. There will be no groaning, no aching. Our eyes will see like they never have before. Our our hearing every sense in our body perfected so that every smell, every touch, every taste, every sight will only bring more of God's glory reverberating in our hearts. I was getting choked up thinking about it. Of what it will be like. You know, every longing heart in this world, what it's missing is God. Every drug addiction, every addiction, every hunger, every lust, every gluttony, every bit of it is longing for something the world can't feel. That's why so many churches, I think, are anemic. Because there's not enough people giving them the glory of God in the pulpit. And that's what we live for is His glory. From it, through it, and to it. Every fiber of our being shall be directed to His glory. And in this moment, it will be. Never again will there be anything that distracts us from it. Because not only will our eyes be directed towards His glory, but every part of us, body, soul, and spirit, will be utterly flowing with His glory. Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. And every description now for the rest of the This description is all a description of one way or another how His glory is radiating from us. First, it is radiance like a rare jewel. Right? I I love this. This this picture that every part of you... John doesn't even have a word for it. He just calls it a rare jewel. Because there's nothing he can compare it to. The radiance of God's glory... Flowing off of you. Flowing off of each and every one of us. His perfect bride. He just has to say, it's like the rarest jewel. I don't even have a name for it. He continues. Like jasper, but clear as crystal. Now we've already seen this description of jasper elsewhere. Back in Revelation chapter 4. When John got the first vision of the throne room of heaven. We read in Revelation 4 verse 3, and he who sat there talking about the Lord had the appearance of jasper and carnelian 
And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. In other words, the jasper appearance of the bride is the reflection that he's there. But notice the jasper is said, it's, it's clear. And when the streets are gold and the walls are gold, but all of them are clear. I have to think about that a lot this week. That doesn't make sense. But the more I think about it, I, I think that what's being said here in this beautiful symbolism of jasper but transparent, gold but clear as glass, is this. We will be beautiful, but everything that makes us beautiful is nothing more than a reflection of Him. And we so desire to be clear and seen through because all we want to be seen is Him. We will be glorified. We will be like pure gold. We will be like Jasper glowing and radiating. But all we will want is Him to be seen. See through me to Him. In other words, everything that will make us beautiful and the glory to come is nothing but a reflection of Him. I will be glorified, but the only thing I want you to see is Jesus. They'll see right through us, right? No one, none of us are going to want to stop and worship each other. Because we'll just see the glory of the Lamb and the Lord upon each and every one of us. Everything that reflects, that makes the, the church beautiful in this picture is nothing but a reflection of Him. And I pray, I pray that right now, already in your life, you'll say, Lord, make me clear as glass so that they'll see you. I hope I disappear as long as they see you. And I think now as we see this picture of what will be, it helps me far understand more Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes in, in the Sermon on the Mount when He says, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. You are, you are a city set on a hill. Literally. In other words, what Jesus is teaching his, his, his followers in this kingdom ethic is live in light of what you will be. Don't live in light of what you were. Live in light of what you will be. You are a city on a hill. You are my bride. You are to be the radiance of my glory, right? Just as I am the radiance of the Father's glory, you are to be the radiance of mine. Going out and shining it to the world. Jasper, but clear as crystal. A reflection that the throne of God is no longer separated from men. He's right there with us. He's right there with us. He sees a great high wall, we are told, surrounding the city. We see this in um, Ezekiel's uh, description as well. This, this wall that surrounds it. What's this symbol symbolizing? It's symbolizing protection, 
security. This is a secure people, a protection. But is this a literal wall? And Zechariah, of all people, actually tells us what this wall is. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. So what's the great wall surrounding the, this beautiful city? It's the power and security of the Lord. I will be her wall and I will be her glory. I will be what makes her safe and I will be what makes her glorified. I will do it. She will be a wall without cities. Why? Because of the multitude of people in her. When you measure, when we look at the measurements of this place, there's no way it could fit that many people in it. It's a big place. It's big, but nowhere near enough to get a multitude beyond number in it. Ezekiel's vision's even smaller. But I love with Zechariah, with the vision he gets, it'll be a city without walls. I'll be the wall. Why? In order to fit the multitudes that are going to be there. So don't you think for a second the Lord's losing the battle. When you get to heaven, when we get to glory on that day, and heaven and earth have met, and we see the fullness, I think we're all going to be embarrassed how wrong we were. It's just about how big His grace was. I think we will be amazed at who will be there just to see how big His grace was. And I think the text can provide that. Yes, the way is narrow. It's because there's only one way. But I think sometimes we lose sight of just how gracious that way is. Just how gracious Jesus is and how powerful He will be in gathering a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And He will be their wall. Why? Because there is no physical city that could hold it. No physical city could hold the multitude which will be there. He will be our wall. He will be our security. We're then given some descriptions of the wall here. There are 12 gates, right? With the names of the 12 tribes written on them. This is fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies coming to pass. This is why trying to shoehorn these prophecies into an earthly millennium just falls short. You're trying to shoehorn them in something that Revelation 21 says is happening right here. After everything's been made brand new. Not before it. Twelve gates. Isaiah 26, 1-2, we have a strong city and the Lord sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. So what's the salvation or what's the wall? The salvation of the Lord. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. The name of the 12 tribes, that's a direct fulfillment of the temple in Ezekiel chapter 48, where there are three gates on each side of this cubed city with the names of the tribes upon them. 
What is that symbolizing, right? What were the 12 tribes? They are symbolized as God's covenant people. The 12 tribes, they are that. And all of God's people are referred to as what? Sons of Abraham. We are His eschatological or His final Israel. We all are. If you are in Christ, you are in Israel. Which is why John 15 says, you must be grafted into the vine. Who is the root of David? Jesus is. And you've got to be grafted into that. Being the Messiah, He gets to constitute who is Israel. And who is Israel? Everyone grafted into Him by faith. That's why Paul says in Romans 11, listen, how much more joyful will it be if the natural branches are grafted back in? And how will they do it if they do not continue in unbelief? It's Paul's whole argument. I'm longing for ethnic Israel to be grafted in. But the only way they're going to get grafted back in to what they've been cut off from is by faith. Just like I was. By faith. So all of God's people, this is His end times Israel. Israel is not a nation. Israel is a covenant people. A holy nation. It is not the identity of an ethnicity. It is an identity of being relationship with God. If you are in relationship with God, you are Israel. That's why at the end of Galatians, Paul says blessings to the Israel of God. Writing to a Gentile church. Why? Because they are the ones who have the circumcision of the heart and have become offsprings of Abraham by faith. Galatians 3 and 4. And so what you're seeing here, when you see the 12, tri- or the 12 tribes on the names of the wall, the gates of the wall, it means that all of God's covenant people are there. No one's left out. Every single person that is in covenant with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ will be here in this moment. No one's left out. The walls go around them. They have all entered in through the gates of covenantal salvation in the Israel of God, Jesus Christ Himself. No one is left outside. No one is cut off who is in Christ. That is the great standard. And that is why the gates are symbolized as the covenant people, as the twelve tribes, those who are in covenant with God. We are told that there are twelve angels guarding them. Once again, fulfilling passages like Isaiah 62, which says that He will set His watchmen over the gates forever. In Ezekiel 41, we are told that on the temple, all of the walls have angels carved on them. Angels were over the Ark of the Covenant. There's little angels, two cherubs, grafted on the top. Why? Because angels are the guardians of God's covenant. They are the guardians of His people. So the picture here is once again, Paul, or excuse me, John is just layering upon layering the security for God's people. You will be secured by the wall which is God. You will be in Him if you are His covenant person. You will be guarded and watched over by angels. But now, more importantly, 
that which once kept you from getting to God, an angel, now gladly welcomes you in. Remember in Eden, after Adam and Eve are removed from the garden because they fall, what did God put in place to ensure they couldn't get to the tree of life? A cherubim, right? With a flaming sword of fire. An angel that keeps them from receiving the immediate presence of God forever. Now, the same angels which once kept men from God out of holiness now gladly welcome them into the gates. This is the great picture. Why? Because the lamb that they follow took the sword of judgment himself so that now we can pass through into the presence of God forever. We're told there are 12, there are 12 foundations which the gates and the walls are built upon. And these foundations have the names of the 12 apostles written on them. Now, what is the foundation here? What's the foundation? And the answer is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation is the faith, the gospel of Christ, the work of which He's done for us, by which all of us stand sure-footed. There is no sure-footedness apart from the gospel of Christ. My feet are planted on solid ground. Why? Because He did it. He put my feet upon the rock. He is the rock. He is the cornerstone. He's the foundation by which all of the apostles and prophets built upon. This was the singular message of the prophets or, and the apostles. The apostles' message was there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. He is the yes and amen of all God's promises. He is the only hope of salvation. That's the foundation that we forever stand upon. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That text really jumped off to me this week. In John chapter 14, we all know that wonderful text. Do not be troubled, for I go to prepare a place for you. And I've often thought about what that meant. And I think Ephesians chapter 2 makes it clear. In Him, you also, the church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When Jesus ascended to the throne, He went to work building a place prepared for us. And who is that? It's actually by preparing you and me. By the sending of the Spirit. Every day, Jesus is preparing His eternal dwelling place, which is you. 
You are his eternal dwelling place. He will be with you forever in the midst of it. And how does he go about doing that? Through the sending of the Spirit, which ensures your sanctification and final glorification. He's not up there just fabricating things. Building a bunch of lean-to homes. Every day, he's fabricating you. And that's why he had to send the Spirit. That's why literally the next two chapters of John are nothing but about him sending the Spirit and why he has to send him. Send the Comforter. I'll send the Helper. I'll send the Teacher. Why? Because through Him, I'm going to prepare you. Through Him, I will prepare you into the eternal dwelling place of God. I will turn you into the eternal temple. I will turn you into the perfected bride. I will turn you into the final, ultimate dwelling place of the triune God of glory. Through the work of the Spirit. Built upon the foundation that my apostles will go and preach. And that my pastors and teachers will build upon. As they build up the saints for the work of the ministry daily. Building them up into the Lord. Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves are being built up like living stones. Upon what? The foundation of Christ. And each week that you come to hear the word of God proclaimed is that little bit of mortar that's being applied to you to be built up more and more into exactly the dwelling place God wants you to be. As he prunes away the old and starts bringing perfection to the new. A process of sanctification right now that will end with this picture of glory. And so here we see the beautiful picture of the city. But now we see the parameters of the city. We see that they're called to measure, verse 15 through 17. Had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So here we are told... That it is being called to measure. This is important. Because in Ezekiel chapter 40 verse 42. What has happened? The final battle. Gog and Magog has happened. The people of God are in exile. And they are now being brought back. And in order to be brought back. In Ezekiel 40 through 42. Everything. 91 verses. Are given to measuring everything. Why? The precise measurements of each and every feature of the vast dramatizes God's promise to the Jewish exiles in Babylon that the promise of his presence and love will see a new and unimaginable fulfillment. One that would find its ultimate yes and amen in Jesus. The picture here of the measurement is this. God's people have been fully and forever brought out of exile. And the measuring of the temple is the declaration that all of it's here. Nothing's missing. All of it is here. Which is why the measurements are what they are. Zechariah 
Chapter 1, verse 7, 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house, my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. The city here, the parameters, are the exact same kind of formation that we see in Ezekiel's temple. Perfectly cubed. Perfectly square. In every way. Except this vision is much bigger than what Ezekiel gets. In other words, the vision of God's ultimate salvation is far bigger than even what Ezekiel could have pictured. It's 12,000 by 12,000. Well, in 12, but 12 is the number of God's people. 1,000 is the number of completeness. So you've got the completeness of God's people and the completeness of God's people squared together. In other words, this measurement is the symbolic picture that all of God's people are measured in. The same temple that was measured in chapter 11, whose outer courts were left to be shattered and stamped on by the nations, battered in this world, is now fully secured, fully brought to glory. In other words, that same, that same temple that was battered by the world has fully met its blessed end. And no one got left out. And so we and the early church being still a part of that temple that's battered by the temptations and persecutions of the world. This is to give us the ultimate hope that no matter what we go through in this life, every one of us will be there on the other side that it belonged to Jesus. We can be battered and beaten by the world because our end state is blessedness beyond belief. We see this even further that it happens to equal up to 144 cubits. Have we not seen 144 elsewhere? God's people measured out 144,000. I saw 144,000 sealed by the Lamb. What's it saying? The church militant will be the church glorified. So you can live faithfully no matter what you face in this life because this is your outcome. The secured, measured, fully gathered people and dwelling place of God. You'll all be there. And so if you're in Jesus today and you're afraid, I want you to heed the words of Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Where Jesus said to his disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, if you sometimes wonder, Am I going to make it? Am I going to get there to this end? If it goes haywire tomorrow and the whole world falls apart and it starts coming after Christians and ripping us out of our home, what's the outcome? John says this is the outcome. This is what it will be. You fully safe, fully secure with Christ forever. That's the outcome. So be faithful though the outward flesh is being battered and bruised by the frustrations of this world. For one day, you will with glorified body and soul dwell forever untouched by evil again.
untouched by frailty and flaws again. We will be fully measured, fully brought in. And the picture of perfection there, this perfect cube, is the idea that there's nothing out of order. There won't be anything about you that's out of order anymore. Your thoughts, your body, your affections, your will, perfectly aligned by the glory of God. There will be nothing out of place. Nothing off square. Perfected. Holy. Pure. And that is what we see with the beauty of the city in verse 18 through 21. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper. He goes through and gets 12 of these jewels. Verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. I love this. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Once again, walls built like jasper. Once we see that picture of the throne room of heaven, Revelation 4, now the Lord is with us. He is the beauty of the city. He is what gives the city its beauty. This beauty goes beyond anything that we can experience or explain. We're told that the foundations are adorned with every kind of jewel. And then he lays out these 12 precious gems. And what's amazing about these precious gems is when you look at them all and and put up them, and I thought about bringing a chart, but I didn't for time's sake. Um, But if you look at them, they all reflect colors that when brought together, reflect the colors of the rainbow. And what else was in the throne room? A rainbow. Depicting what? God's faithfulness. His glory and His faithfulness is what marks the beauty of His bride. But there are reasons that these jewels are met there. There are really three key places in Scripture where these jewels are marked throughout. The first place that we see them in absolute clarity is in the breastplate of the high priest. Exodus chapter 28, 15-21 You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work in the style of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine Entwined linen. You shall set in four rows of stones a row of sardius, topaz, carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, emerald, sapphire, and diamond. On the third row, jacinth, agat, and amethyst. And on the fourth row, beryl, and onyx, and jasper. They shall be set in a gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the twelve sons of Israel. They shall be like signets with, which are engraved with its names for the twelve tribes. What was this symbolizing, right? These twelve stones. Remember, who's the only one that can go in the Holy of Holies? The high priest. So when the high priest goes in wearing this breastplate, he carries all of Israel in with him. I'm carrying all of Israel with me into the Holy of Holies. And the picture that the foundations have all these 12 stones is the picture that all of God's people have been brought into the Holy of Holies. No one else has to go in for us anymore. You're all welcome. You are all brought into the Holy of Holies because you now are part of the Holy of Holies. Not only that, but this was also 
the stones found in Eden. Remember Ezekiel 28? All those precious stones, Ezekiel 20, 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold. You have been brought back to paradise. You are in the holy of holies with him forever. No longer do you need a mediator, for your mediator is the lamb. He is God himself and he is with you. He has brought you into the holy of holies. And you are forever in the Edenic state, never again to be lost. And finally, these stones, these precious stones that we've been turned into, was a picture of comfort to a beaten and battered people. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 11 through 12. Hear this today. If you don't hear anything else, hear this verse. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones and antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. O you afflicted one, storm-tossed, not comforted. This is what I will do for you, says the Lord your God. In other words, these 12 stones of beauty are a picture of God's final comfort. That's all you'll know is His comfort. All you'll know is His peace. Never again will you be storm-tossed. Never again will you be not comforted. Never again will you be an afflicted one. The gates were 12 pearls. And I think that that's a symbol, symbolic reality of the fact that the only way to get into this place is through the pearl of great price, which is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is that pearl of great price. And the only way to enter into glory forever is through Him and by Him. That's why I love the fact that it's made of a single pearl because there's only a single way. He is the single pearl that we walk through to get to this glorious gate. And the city streets are pure gold, but clear like glass. Once again, that reflection that everything is, the, is almost see-through towards Him. He is the reflection of that makes everything beautiful. And then finally, we see the glory of the city in verse 22 through 27. The first thing we're told here in verse 22 is that there was no temple in the city. So now, everything, right, that John would have been describing up to this point, any person in the first century church that was aware of Ezekiel's temple was probably thinking, oh, this is when Ezekiel's temple is going to get built. Because this is the, the corridors and maybe the bride part is going to be living inside of that temple. So maybe that's what's being described here. But then now the angel shows John something very important. And John wants to make very clear that that physical temple is not to be understood that way. I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord, God the Almighty, is its temple and the Lamb. We shouldn't be shocked by this. What was the physical temple? It was a separation from God and man. It was the only way that God could dwell with sinful people. 
was by having a wall of separation. Why in the world would we long for another wall of separation? Makes no sense to me. We're looking for a third temple. God, I pray not. He is the temple. And I believe it will be, it'll, that will be one of the great delusions sent by the spirit of the age to lead others away, to look for something that Christ has already fulfilled. The Lord is the temple. And Jesus said it himself in John 2. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. His body is the temple. And what are you? You're his body. You're the one being built up as living stones, Peter says, upon the foundations of the apostles. You're the dwelling place of the Holy One. You have been carried into that. We are His body. I love what Jeremiah 3, 16 and 17 says about the day of the new covenant age. Jeremiah writes, And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, The ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. No one's going to even talk about an Ark of the Covenant or those physical things. Why? Because I'm going to make my throne Jerusalem. Which is not a place we see. But a people. But a people. You know, there's a a movie, and, and I'm not necessarily ascribing Marvel movies to anyone. But there's a movie recently regarding Thor. And it's, it's the Ragnarok version and the idea, which Ragnarok, so funny, is actually was a concept made by Christian missionaries. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of the Norse mythology were actually written by Christian missionaries to try and use that as a, as a witnessing tool to teach them the gospel. But at the end, right, the picture of the homeland, Asgard, is being destroyed. And, and Odin, right, the false god there, tells Thor, Asgard is not a place, it's a people. And I thought... Hey, that's what I've been trying to tell you forever about the new Jerusalem. It's not a place. It's a people. It's the people of God. It's why it can't be destroyed. It's why we are considered pilgrims in this world. Because there isn't a city in this world we belong to. We are the city. There's no place in this world we're going to find a home. We are the home. Which is why this corporate gathering means so much. It's why when brothers and sisters come together, that's the closest to home you'll ever be in this life. It's when we're together. Because we are the city of God. We are the home of the Holy Spirit, of the Lamb. And He is our temple. And we are His body and extension of it. We are told the Lord is the light and the lamp. He is what lights the city. His glory. So, so often people say, you know, how was there light in Genesis before there was the sun? He was the light. He was the light. So what you're seeing is a reversal of what was. 
And why would there be no sun? Why would there be no celestial bodies? Because everything that man wants used as an idol is no more to be found. There is nothing left that can compete with His glory that might lure us away. Isaiah chapter 24 and 23. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and His glory will be before His elders. The, sun can, or the moon confounded and the sun ashamed. Literally, it's, it's pictured as it fleeing away in embarrassment because of how glorious God is next to it. He will be the light. Isaiah 60, verse 19-20 The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness, and shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be for your glory. Your sun shall go down no more, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. He will be the light and the lamp. The light by which we behold all things and the lamp which leads us forever into eternity. But notice what's missing in all of that. There's no more darkness. There's no more darkness where things can lay hidden. Where sin could be performed. That's the picture here. The picture is that everything that God would wish us to behold for glory will be absolutely seen clearly. And there will never be again a darkness where something can lie and plan and deceive to pull us away from it again. There's no ounce of darkness left from you or the world around you. And of all the things that I'm most excited about, It's the reality that there never again will be any darkness in me. That's what I'm most excited about. To never again have a thought that challenges my God. A heart that would wander from His glory. That will be completely swallowed up by the light of His glory. Kings and nations will bring Him glory and honor. This is the picture there, right? It's the picture that even the most exalted of men will do nothing but worship Him. There will be no exaltations of men in glory. It will be all laying it at His feet. All glory and honor and praise will be brought in day and night to Him. That even the highest men of earth will know nothing in heaven but worship the true King of kings and Lord of lords. The nations will come to His light Kings, the brightness to his rising. Isaiah 60 verse 3. We are told that its gates will never shut. Isaiah 60 verse 11. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut. The people may bring to you the wealth of the nations and their kings led in procession. What's this the picture of this? There is complete, nonstop, open access to God. Not only that. But why do we have gates? To keep enemies out. The reason they don't have to be shut because there are no more enemies. There's nothing else that can ever harm you again. The gates can stay open. Because the only thing going in and out is His glory and His people. There is no more danger that lurks 
for you. No more barbarians to come and beat down the door. No more need for a moat to be dug around. Because you will be perfectly secure. And day and night, you have complete access to the Lord. Nothing to ever hinder your path again. Nothing unclean will ever enter it again. Joel chapter 3, verse 17, You shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. What does it mean by strangers? It means those who don't belong. Those who have no home here. But my Jerusalem shall be holy. You will be holy. You will be perfected. You will be safe. You will be glorified. So how do we close? Three things. We will be completely secure. You never have to worry about this being lost. Because there's no evil to pull it away. There's no evil that can tempt you. And there's no evil inside you that could lure you against your God. All the darkness has been swallowed up by his light and glory. Nothing will ever lead you away. Nothing will ever cause this city to crumble. Nothing will ever be lost. You will be completely secured in every way. That's what this vision wants to make clear. Take heart though you're trampled by the world. Because when you get to glory, you'll never be trampled again. You'll never be harmed. You'll never be hurt. This is what Jesus gives you. This is what He gives you more than anything else. This is why He had to be more than just a physical healer like you talked about this morning. He had to give us cleansing, life, why? So that we could get in this city. So that we could no longer be outcast, but be brought into this city. A city which He has built, which is completely secure. Secondly, we will be completely glorified. The radiance of His beauty and glory and light will so permeate every fiber of your being that you will only know Him and His goodness. There will not be a wayward thought. There won't be a wicked heartbeat. There won't be anything about you that has the smallest shadow of darkness. You will be completely glorified. And everything that is beautiful about us, church, will be nothing more than a reflection of Him. When we behold Him face to face, then we will become. We will become like Him. This is what is the true doctrine of something called theosis. The false doctrine of theosis is that you're going to be absorbed into God Himself. That's false. There's some aspects of that in the Eastern Orthodox Church. The true doctrine of theosis is that in glory... There isn't a single part of you that won't reflect Him. Every part of you will reflect Him and His glory and goodness. And lastly, we will be completely His. Completely His. Nothing else vying for our affections. Nothing else trying to lure us away. Every moment will be in the midst of His presence and glory. 
every moment nothing but peace unimaginable. Every moment of knowing the smile of our Father's face. The warmth of our Savior's touch. The power of the Spirit's presence. Every moment, we will be completely His. His consummated, purified bride. We will be the city that God built. And only such a city can stand forever. I want to just close with this verse again. Isaiah 54, 11 and 12. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. No matter what you face today, this is the outcome. Glory unimaginable. I'm so thankful that we belong to the city that God is building and will complete in glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that you've given us. May we live in light of it. May we live as your precious bride now. May we seek to live daily to reflect you in all things. That we would be clear as a glass, God, to the world. And that nothing but Jesus would be radiated through us. That he would be so seen through us that it might draw, that his light might draw many to you through us, Lord. And Lord, when we find ourselves downcast, when we find ourselves downtrodden, when we find ourselves frustrated and angry over our own shortcomings and our own failures and all of the things that we face, may we remember those precious words of what you will do. You will set our stones in antimony. You will lay our foundations with sapphire. You will make the pinnacles of our gates carbuncles and you will make our wall that of precious stones. You will be our wall. You are our foundation. You are our security. You are our hope. You are our glory. So Lord, help us see you. Help us trust you even when we don't understand. And constantly set this vision on our hearts that we might daily live knowing that this is what the finish line looks like. So may we run the race all the more hard knowing the glory that awaits. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.